All right, what's going on, podcast fans? This is episode 53, Automated IPS. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, Yosef? Oh, you know, just getting situated in my new uh, work situation here at the New York Stem Cell Foundation. And, in your uh, new digs? Yeah, and I guess that's uh, pretty good timing, as uh, our guest today yeah. is going to be uh, my new boss, so... <laughs> That's yeah, that's so, and then that was not arranged. Yeah. I mean, we did not, that was a random thing. Dr. Uh, Scott Noggle, or Snoggle as I call him, Dr. <laughs> Scott Noggle uh, from the New York Stem Cell Foundation will join us uh, in a little bit and talk to us about his and their effort to automate or kind of, you know, automate IPS cell generation, how you can take the humans out of making stem cells and leave it to the robots. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> it's a really awesome thing to see. Yosef sees it now and, um, for anyone who hasn't seen something like this, it's pretty incredible just to look at. I mean, yeah. just to watch. They have this really awesome video, we, which we'll talk to Scott about. But I mean, it's it's pretty incredible to to watch the technology work. It's really really cool. Yeah, we gotta hunt that video down and make sure there's a link to it for this episode because uh, you kind of it's one of those things where you just kind of have to see it to to believe it or understand what's actually going on uh, with this whole automation process. Uh, but it's uh it's pretty cool technology, and uh, he'll bring us through it in the interview. So. So looking forward to that. How's everything on your end? Everything's all right. Writing grants as usual. Um, um, found out, I don't know if I mentioned this before, we found out we got a small business grant, which we're excited about Congrats. to look at how chemical, thank you, chemical, all these chemicals that are floating around our world are uh, affecting brain development. So we're looking to develop some new technology and uh, high throughput assays actually to see how these chemicals that are in all our plastics and everywhere affect uh, brain development, so we're excited about that. So it's like you get up. It's like the lottery grants. You got to play to win. You know, you got to you got to buy a hundred lottery tickets to win once. It's kind of similar to the grants. You got to write them, and eventually you're going to get something. So we uh we keep pushing through. So the podcast here, we are on episode fifty three. Uh, we are the official podcast. The stem cell podcast is the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. The ISSCR dot org. Go to ISSCR.org to check them out, see what all they got to offer. So, you know, I want to I wanna talk about this quickly before we get into everything. So, um, we've been talking about this with ISSCR, and I see it around. So, October 14th is Stem Cell Awareness Day, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a Wednesday. Now, we have a show that's due to air on the Tuesday, the 13th. So, what we're going to do is we're going to delay this show one day, and we're going to put it out on the 14th for Stem Cell Awareness Day. So, but here's what we need from everyone out there. This is really, really important. So, during that show, we would like to answer questions about stem cells, anything about stem cells. So, whether it's hardcore science, whether it's lay, you know, what is stem cell, what, what is a stem cell, whatever anyone out there, if you have a question about stem cells in any format, we want you to please send them in and we will answer them on the show as part of Stem Cell Awareness Day. And we're going to help. We're going to get our help from uh, ISSCR. We're going to try to get a help from uh, the sponsors, um, Thermo Fisher, uh, Stem Cell Technologies. We're going to have them try to put it out through their social media and everything to remind everybody. So there's a bunch of ways you can submit your questions. You can send them to us at stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. You can go on Facebook, Stem Cell Podcast. You can go on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast. Or you can go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the leave us a voicemail button and just kind of talk right into your computer and we'll record your question and we'll get it there. So there's many ways for you to send in your questions, whether it's career advice on stem cells or basic stuff on stem cells. Get your questions in 
and we will answer them or do our best to answer uh, as many as we can uh, on the 14th for Stem Cell Awareness Day. So we're, we're going to try that out, Yo, see if we can get some people involved here. Okay, October 14th. I think that's kind of fitting. Yeah. yeah, October 14th, Stem Cell Awareness Day. I didn't even know really there was a day for stem cells. Did yeah. you know that? Well, now, uh, now I am aware. Now <laughs> you know. Now you're aware. Um, so how, how? So you're getting settled in, every, everything all right? Yep, definitely. I'm still waiting on my ID, so every day I have to like sign in as a guest. I can't wait to get my ID and say, yes, I belong. <laughs> Dude, are they still? Are is the lab still above the barbecue pit, the barbecue place? Uh, yes, yes. Because I remember going there and sitting there, being like, oh, "I'm getting, I'm be hungry all day if I worked here. <laughs> I just smell barbecue all day long." Speaking of which, it's lunchtime, so let's wrap yeah, this is. one up. Uh, all right, so let's 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 move through. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna get into the uh, science roundup that is sponsored by uh, Thermo Fisher. Um, we Thermo Fisher uh, has been with us since the beginning. Uh, and they have been with us in the lab really since the beginning uh, with their, all their products for stem cell research and beyond. So you can go to their websites, Life Technologies, Thermo Fisher, and find out all about their products. Or you can go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner, and it'll take you to, to uh, their, their new products, what they have. Um, and I'm sure you can find uh, something for everyone out there. They have a little something for everybody. So please go make sure you check that out. And with that, I will turn it over to Yos, who will get into the roundup. All right. So there was a biological chemistry study showing that the transcription factor ATF4 uh, alters gene expression in skeletal muscle, thus causing a reduction of muscle protein synthesis, strength, and mass as we age. So they found that ursolic acid, which is found in apples, peels, and uh, tomatodyne, which is found in green tomatoes, uh, blocks this process and can increase muscle mass by 10% and muscle quality by 30%. And they found in mice that were lacking the ATF4 gene uh, that they're resistant to, uh, to the effects of aging over time. So uh, you can find that biological There's chemistry. something called tomatodyne? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's great, right? Uh, by the way, there's a new uh, species of humans. I'm sure you saw this. Two, I know, right? We're not as unique. Uh, so there are two papers in uh, the journal eLife, which uh, the new species is from a uh, 2013 discovery of uh, 1,500 numbered fossil elements in a cave known as the Rising Star in nor northwest Johannesburg. So uh, they found uh, 15 individuals in this cave uh, known as Homo naledi, which means star in so Sesetho language, so named after the cave they were found in and uh the brain size is actually quite small it's the size of an orange and it had shoulders similar to apes um but the feet were human-like feet so it was uh definitely bipedal and uh very curved fingers which suggests uh climbing capabilities so uh, so they were, they were walked upright, right? I mean, they yes. most likely. Yes. Uh, That's so crazy. Based on their feet. Yeah. So uh, they're describing it like a golem type of creature. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> picture that. Um, there was a nature study of eight patients suggesting that amyloid beta plaques, uh, which is found in Alzheimer's disease, may be transmissible via certain medical procedures. I didn't know this term, iatrogenic, uh, which is... Uh, the cause of a disease caused by a medical procedure. So uh, one route of transmission that they uh, 
possibly identify was from short people who got human growth hormone extracted from cadaver sources uh, from pituitary glands from uh, cadavers from the years 1958 to 1985 whereby some patients got Crutzfeld-Jacob disease or mad cow disease and in six out of the eight brains that they analyzed they found some degree of a beta pathology which is rare in this age range of patients which was between the ages of 36 and 51. So this suggests that there may be iatrogenic uh, mad cow may be the cause. So uh, in, in mad cow may be the cause of these A-beta plaques. So that's why it made it into nature. It's sort of like how this idea of uh, people saying that, you know, the Parkinson's Louis body pathology right, right. could spread. Uh, same, same idea except for A-beta plaques. Uh, so you can find that in nature. Uh, there was a PLOS genetics, the Public Library of Science genetics study, looking at a database of uh, 14,000 people and found a variant that causes uh, nearsightedness. So um, this gene called APLP2 causes myopia or nearsightedness. And uh, this big, because I didn't know this, 44% of adults have myopia, which is up uh, from 25% uh, 30 years ago. So it seems to be on the rise. And mm. in some parts of Asia, it's as high as 80%. So uh, you can find that over in PLOS Genetics. There was a biophysical journal study showing how uh, this Brazilian wasp venom known as poly polybia mp1 selectively kills cancer cells without harming nor normal cells uh it does this by interacting with lipids that are abnormally distributed on the surface of cancer cells thus creating holes on the cell surface so they found that phospholipids phosphatidyl phosphatidyl serine uh or ps and phosphatidyl ethylene Phenylalanine or PE are normally located on the inner membrane of the cell surface, but in cancer cells, PE and PS are these phospholipids are on the outside of the cell, and that's how this uh, venom selectively uh, attacks cancer cells. I, I love selective attacks of the cancer cell. There's I know that's really no. cool. And by the way, phosphatidyl is one of my favorite science words. Title or tittle? I say tittle just because I just because I want to. <laughs> okay, all right, good. Uh, <laughs> there was a J Neuro or Journal of Neuroscience study pinpointing the neurons that influence alcoholism. So alcohol consumption alters the structure and function of medium spiny neurons of the dorsal medial striatum. Uh, sort of an addiction center uh, in the brain. So they found that consumption of large amounts of alcohol acts on the D1 receptor, you know, the go receptor versus the no-go D2 receptor, which we're not going to get into. But um, they, they, they showed that consumption of large amounts of alcohol acts on this go receptor, uh, making them more excitable. And then the medium spiny neurons th then have longer branches and more mushroom-shaped spines uh, you know, those little bullions, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, uh, then in abstaining mice, uh, mouse, medium spiny neurons. So, uh, there was no difference in the D2 no-go receptors. Uh, so this is a dopamine receptor, um, and they used a drug that partially blocks the D1 receptor, uh, which actually reduced the animal's desire to drink while uh, the D2 blocker had no effect. So you can find that over in J-Neuro. Hopefully find a new treatment for alcoholism. 
uh, cell metabolism. This study looked at a the ability of a drug called MSDC0602 to slow the production of glucose. And what they found in mice is that it cut sugar production by inhibiting the transportation of pyruvate which is a building block of glucose uh, from the bloodstream into the mitochondria of liver cells, which thus resulted in uh, lower blood sugar levels. So this could be a new treatment for uh, for not only diabetics, but also people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. uh, moving on, there was a scientific report study uh, looking at the resin from conifers, uh, you know, those like yeah, pine yeah, trees. Yeah. Uh, that is, So uh, this resin contains a potassium channel opener, uh, which could possibly use to treat epilep- epilepsy. So most epilepsy drugs are actually block sodium channels. This is the opposite, uh, opening potassium channels. So there's like a sodium-potassium balance with neurons. And instead of uh, closing sodium channels, it's opening potassium channels. And they looked at 71 different versions of resin acids known as uh, dehydroabietic acid. Uh, and they narrowed it down to 12 molecules that keep uh, hypersensitive potassium channels in the frog eggs open uh, and later verified them in mouse nerve cells. So possibly a new tra- treatment for epilepsy. Dude, how the hell do they find out that conifers have something that has a, is, a, is a potassium channel modulator? Yeah, that's actually a like good what question. the hell do they do? They do is, is it like you know, like penicillin drops off the ceiling? Like someone was outside, and I don't. Know, yeah, so yeah, bizarre. I would like know, to find out how they maybe, figured that out. Anyway. Maybe it's like uh, you know Isaac Newton with the apple, just a pine cone hit him on. Yeah, the head. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, I should check pine cones for potassium modulators. Yeah. Um, there was what's our favorite journal. Yes, you know what? I was just going to ask you at the end of this. We haven't had any PNAS studies in a while. PNAS! (laughs) Yes, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, You're going to like this one. They found that people with depression had 32% more FGF9 or fibroblast growth factor 9 in their hippocampus. And in rats, they found that when they exposed uh, the rats to repeated stress over 10 days, the levels of FGF9 rose in the hippocampus. And when they injected FGF9 into the brains of these uh, rats, they acted more anxious and moved around less. Uh, so they also did RNA inhibitation. RNAi ex- experiments where they blocked uh, production of FGF9 in the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, and it produced a 30% drop in FGF9 levels, and the the mice the rats showed uh, less anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can find FGF, that. FGF, baby. Yes. A uh, couple more real quick. There was a sleep study showing that uh, people who sleep six hours a night or less are four times more likely to catch a cold when exposed to the cold virus uh, compared to those who get more than seven hours of sleep. So sleep was actually the most important factor, uh, more important than age, stress levels, race, education, income, or even wow. smoking. So yeah, get your sleep if you're sick or think you've been exposed to So you to can smoke hours. them cigarettes if you're sleeping 10 hours a day, yeah, all right? I guess so. Uh, and finally, I'll a- a- end with a uh, nice 
PLOS, one public library of science, one study of 40 uh, Parkinson's disease patients versus 40 healthy older adults. And they found that the most Parkinson's disease patients did not have significant memory problems. About a quarter of them did. But the brain scans of the patients revealed that changes in their gray and white matter uh, did not were not related to the dopamine loss. So uh, there's not a clear link between uh, the disease and actual memory problems. So uh, that's Very in PLOS cool. 1. And uh, I guess I'll end it on that, except for one little nature study I'm going to uh, uh, sneak in here where they surveyed all the trees on the planet and they showed that there are 3 trillion trees or 422 trees for every person on earth. So you, Chris, alone get 422 trees oh, being man. on this planet. So, That's a lot of trees. I know, right? Three. I wonder if trees. they know how many. If like, I wonder if they know uh, where like a problem would be if we lost X amount per person. Like, if we got down to three fifty, would we have a problem? Yeah, yeah, three fifty. I don't know. That That's number. interesting. Would you yeah. expect it to be more or less per person? Were you were you whatever by that number? Or that uh, sounds about actually, right. Actually, it, it, it's a dramatically up from the previous estimate. Really? So yeah, they. Uh, they, I, the, they I guess the previous ones. The were, planet tree campaign worked, huh? Yeah. <laughs> or they just. <laughs> Decide to count a little better. Oh man! Well, all right. So let let's let's continue on because we got to get to Scott. Um, so uh, before I do my my stem cell part, I only have six or so articles right now. So um, uh, Paul Tazar, the Tazar Lab, uh, tweeted at us. And he said, as a tribute to our friends at the Stem Cell Podcast, they have these Friday lab meetings with uh, another lab there, Case. I think it's, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to mess up your name, Skahari Lab or something like that. Uh, I'm so, I apologize. That's the handle, at Skahari Lab. And, and Paul is um, at Tazar Lab, C-W-R-U. They're going to they're gonna basically take their articles and they're going to hashtag them Psy Roundup. Oh, nice. uh, as a tribute to us, so it'll contri- it'll put on Twitter what they talk about and discuss. And what we're going to do is we're going to take our articles and we're going to start to tweet them out with that hashtag. So everyone out there, if you follow uh, hashtag Psy Roundup, you'll be able to pull up our articles we discuss on a podcast and also what Paul, um, uh, the Tazar Lab and Skahari Lab is going to be talking about. So thank you guys for, for doing that. Mm-hmm. So let's see here. Um, I saw this here. Uh, the stem cell procedures need more oversight. So this has been something that's been talked about. Um, so this is coming out of Washington. Federal officials um, kind of need to do more to prevent the four, you know, for-profit stem cell clinics from exploiting and potentially harming patients, like we've talked about. And this is according to an article published in the New England Journal of uh, Medicine, or NEDGM, as we say yes. here. And this commentary followed a May article by the Associated Press that identified 170 U.S. clinics that charge between $5,000 and $50,000 for stem cell procedures that basically, you know, claim or purport to treat dozens of diseases and conditions, including Alzheimer's and such. So these authors here highlight the risks of unproven stem cell procedures like we talk about in the show, we talked about it with ISSCR. And they also, in the article, call on the FDA to clarify rules governing this space because it's kind of nebulous and to work with state medical boards to, you know, penalize physicians who are pushing these bogus therapies, which I, which I, which I agree with. That's funny because um, my uncle just asked me about this because he was thinking about going to Nicaragua to get like yeah. a fat, you know, See? he was like, I could get liposuction and fix my shoulder all in one spot. Boom. I was like, wow, Boom. I don't I, know about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. That's like the, the, bre- the breast implants and fat, you know, you get yeah. everything done. Um, so, uh, the FDA basically said Wednesday that it understands that there needs to be, a, you know, there, there's a need for clear guidance and they have issued three drafts. 
they say three draft guidance documents to specify uh, to address this area. But these are just drafts, guidance documents, and they serve as recommendations, and they're not legal requirements, and there's really no deadline for when they must be finalized. So uh, this article is just calling for the government to step in and regulate better the stem cell, uh, these bogus or these stem cell uh, procedures. Um, and uh, I agree with them, so we'll see, we'll see where that goes. Uh, I saw this article in Science, the, U- the EU, the European Union, votes to ban cloning of farm animals. Um, you remember Dolly, the first animal to be cloned, Dolly the sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, so the European Parliament voted, it was September 8th, uh, to uh, ban the cloning of all farm animals as well as the sale of cloned livestock, their offspring, and products derived from them. So it passed by a large margin, actually, um, and um, which would have been uh, implemented a provisional ban on the cloning of just five species. So it says the supporters of the ban cited animal welfare concerns, claiming that only a small percentage of the cloned offspring survived term and many die shortly after birth. Um, but the ban does not cover cloning for research purposes, nor does it prevent efforts to clone endangered species, which they're doing now, Yos, you know, cloning to help uh, prevent the, uh, species going and uh, going extinct. Mm. Um, companies in the U.S. and China are cloning livestock for breeding and for research purposes. And I guess the FDA has found no significant differences between healthy clones and healthy animals from conventional breeding. Uh, and it also considers meat and other products from clones to be safe as that from other farm animals. But we, we've, I think we talked about those companies cloning meat that sell it. Uh, and that's a whole other f- uh, world. But anyway, so this, this, this just recently happened in Europe. Um, so this I was reading in a couple places. One place I saw it was here on the Ricken uh, website. And I also saw Paul Notfleur, IPSL.com, wrote a blog on it. Masahayo Takahashi was awarded the inaugural o- Ogawa Yamanaka Stem Cell Prize. So congratulations to her. Um, so uh, she's been awarded this. Uh, prize for her trailblazing work leading the first clinical trial to use IPS cells in humans. And so the prize, I don't know if you're familiar, Yos, or everybody out there, but it's recognized individuals who, you know, original translational research has advanced has advanced cellular reprogramming, as you can imagine with the Yamanaka in the name, uh, mm. technology or regenerative medicine. And it'll be, pre- it'll be presented on Wednesday at the Gladstone, which, which runs the prize. Um, and she, so Dr. Takahashi is at the basically leads the lab for retinal regeneration at the CDB, um, and she launched the first ever IPS clinical study in 2013 for age-related macular degeneration. Um, so, uh, actually, reached out to her, Yos, and hoping she's going to come on the show one day. It'd be great to have her come on the show. Definitely. Uh, uh, so this this actually is really interesting, and I've been in dialogue with the, the with who we're going to talk about. He's going to do an interview and come on the show. I think this is a fascinating story. So there's this company called Stem Centrics. Have you heard about this? So um, it's a stem. Basically, the question is: Are stem cells at the root of common cancers? Right. We talked about this, like at the heart of a cancer is a stem cell. If you don't kill the stem cell, this tumor will always come back. This has been an idea for a while, right? So this, this startup, Stem Centrix, thinks that's the case. So uh, Scott Dyla, or Dyla, uh, he's you know he's the chief scientific officer uh, who was a you know has a has a has an academic career uh, was basically uh, talks about. Um, curing cancer by targeting stem cells. And so 13 years later, that was, an, that was back in 2002 when they talked about that. The conversation has evolved into one of the most highly valued private biotech startups ever, dude. Yeah. I mean, wow. check this out. They raised $500 million, million dollars. Yeah. And their company is valued at $3 billion. 
I, you and know, I never heard this company until I think Paul Knopfler had this on his blog too. Did he? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, uh, I haven't checked it recently. Uh, but people familiar with its finances say that it's just an unprecedented value for a company with no revenue. Yeah. They don't do anything. It's just, well, I shouldn't say that. They have no product that they're selling. And they, they, they're, they're, they're talking about their technology and, you know, and what they're going to do. Um, and so they call them these uni- Silicon Valley. They call them these unicorns, private, usually profitless and fast-growing tech companies worth billions of dollars and more like Snapchat, Uber, these things, right? So this is really, really like out there and hot. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have Scott come on. I'm working out working out like an interview day, hopefully for the next episode, so he can tell us a little bit about what their plan is and what the technology is in some aspect. Um, Six hundred thousand Americans die of cancer each year, uh, so this would be an interesting way to fight it. And so I'm will be you know curious to have him come on and tell us a little so bit about uh, that. So that's Scott Dyla. I'm seeing yeah. they have a science translational medicine uh, encouraging preclinical data targeting. Yep. DLL three, so yep. yeah, it'd be great to have him on. Yeah, we're gonna try to have him come on. He's 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 willing to do it. He's just we just got to work out a time. So hopefully we'll have him come on for you guys. Um, I saw this in, in Cell Stem Cell uh, out of Tom Sudoff's lab. Uh, Thomas Sudoff Labs and Marius Wernig's on the line. Human neuropsychiatric disease modeling using conditional deletion reveals synaptic transmission defects caused by heterozygous mutations in Nurex and one. So um, uh, basically, uh, if you mutate. Or the heterozygous mutation of this gene norexin impairs neurotransmitter release, um, and they're saying that um, you know this has uh, implications in disease. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm very much abbreviating everything because I want to get through. Mm. Uh, so you can check that out in cell stem cell. Uh, this was I thought this was cool. This is at a, uh, the lab of Jorge Coriel. Uh, melatonin contributes to the seasonality of multiple sclerosis relapses. So, you know, seasonal changes in disease activity have been observed in MS, which is an autoimmune disorder, and they suggest that the environment obviously then influences the disease, and they report that melatonin levels, whose production is modulated by seasonal variation at, in night length. Did you know that, Yos? I didn't know that. Mm. Uh, negatively correlate with MS activity. So if you treatment with melatonin ameliorates disease in an experimental model of MS and directly interferes with the differentiating of human and mouse T cells. Um, so this result suggests that melatonin is another example of how environmental-driven cues can impact these T-cell differentiation have implications for autoimmune disorders. That's kind of an interesting approach. Um, melatonin, never, that's what uh, the, the sleep, uh, the jet lag stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah pop a melatonin, you okay. know, get back on track, <laughs> uh, can, can, can help your seasonality in MS. Okay, and then last thing I'm going to end here, I was actually um, scheduled to have a call with this uh, Andy Cohen who's a senior author on this paper along with Sally Temple. Uh, but um, I think I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. This is really cool. This is in Stem Cell Reports. Computational image analysis reveals intrinsic multi-generational differences between anterior and posterior cerebral cortical neuroprogenitor cells. Now, blah, 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 blah to all the layout there. Like, what? What are you talking about? Basically, which what they did was you can isolate neural stem cells and put them in a dish, and then you can watch them. The question is, can they make the cell types in the brain, are they intrinsically wired to just, you know, make a certain type of neuron, let's say? Or do they, you know, is that signal coming extrinsically? or in, Think about it like nature-nurture, right? Is the program instilled within the cell of where to take it from? Or is it totally, you know, does it need the environmental cues? Um, and so what they did was they take different cells from different regions of the brain. They take an anterior neural stem cell and a posterior 
and they put them in the same environment type type games, and they ask like what happens, and what they do, man, they 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 follow hundreds and thousands of clones, and they reconstruct them using time lapse. So you can watch these cells divide beautifully. And uh, Andy has developed this, this software uh, that allows you to, to basically, it's an open source automated software designed to track stem progenitor clones and time-lapse movies. And it's available. You can go get it and download it. And the videos are incredible. And what they found was that there are intrinsic differences. So the cells are intrinsically different. It's not so much the environment. There is the environmental component, but the actual neural stem cell is intrinsically different depending on where you get it from. Is he and, a Drexel? Yes. Oh, I saw this video. It's really cool. Yeah, they're they're crazy, and then they they color they can color pseudo color like the different cell types in the clone. So you have these purple and green and red cells in a beautiful clone. It's really amazing, and it, and it it it's a lot of data, and it helps to easily track clones. And it's something you have to do if you want to understand how one stem cell turns into fifty cells. And basically, you're following the birth. So one goes into two, two goes into four, four goes into eight, and this program allows you to track each division. And find out where things go. So uh, very cool. Uh, I I I know uh, I know Andy Sally is obviously at the Neural Stem Cell Institute here, and they collaborate a lot. Uh, and so I'm I'm hoping I can collaborate with Andy on on trying to understand human lineages in autism and things like this. So uh, really cool. Go check that out in Stem Cell Reports. And uh, that's all I got, yo. So I think maybe we should now transition. Yeah, let's over uh, let's have the, you- uh, get Snoggle on. So this is the uh, interview portion of the uh, stem. I'm calling him Snoggle. I should I should call him Doctor Scott Noggle. Sorry, Scott. Uh, and uh, to the interview portion of the show, which is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. So Stem Cell Technologies has this cool thing, yo. So I, I you know they sent it over for us to talk about, and I was playing around with it. So. You know, there's so many, when you're working with stem cells and pluripotent stem cells, it's difficult because there's a lot of different components. There's passaging, reprogramming, culture, plate coding, cryopreservation. There's all these different things. And within each thing, bucket, there's all these different, some people do it one way, there's different methods. So what they've done is they've created these um, sort of infographics that can kind of help you sort it out. And so they're like tree diagrams. So if you want you want to know about passaging cells, you can go check it out and click on it and it says, you know, do you want an enzyme-free passaging reagent? Yes mm. or no? If you say yes, you follow the arrow and it brings you to ways to do that. If you say no, it brings you to the ways to do that. Do you want to save time? Do you selectively detach do you want to selectively detach undifferentiated cells? Yes or no? So it kind of walks you through your thought process and helps you kind of make a decision on what you need to do. Um, so if you guys are interested in checking that out, which is really cool. It's free. Go to stemcell.com slash go PSC and you can uh, access the infographics, print them out, hang them up in the lab. Stemcell.com slash go PSC. PSC being pluripotent stem cell. Pluripotent stem cell. Yeah, Yeah, go PSC. All right, man. Let's uh, let's bring Scott on. Okay, so last episode, uh, we actually, Yosef told us that he was uh, moving on uh, to the New York Stem Cell Foundation to continue his career. And coincidentally enough, our guest for today's episode, episode 53, um, is Dr. Scott Nagel, who's the Vice President for Stem Cell Research at the New York Stem Cell Foundation, or NICEF. He's also the NICEF Charles Evans Senior Research Fellow for Alzheimer's Disease. Just quick two sentences on, on Scott's training. He received his PhD in molecular medicine from the Medical College of Georgia and a postdoctorate fellow at the Rockefeller University where he's studying neurobiology and stem cell biology. So, Scott, welcome to the show, Scott. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Good, glad to do this. 
So let, I think for everybody, let's let's for everybody first introduce the New York Stem Cell Foundation for anyone that might not be familiar. So why don't you give us, you know, a little bit about NICEF, the New York Stem Cell Foundation, what, what its mission is and what you're doing over there. Yeah. So uh, the New York Stem Cell Foundation, we've been around for about uh, 10 years. Actually, this is our 10th anniversary wow, year. Jeez. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been quite a haul. So I've been with the foundation for a little over seven years uh, after coming from Rockefeller. Um, so basically, the we we have three different programs at the at the foundation that that we're engaged in. So one's the um, the the lab itself, the research institute that that I work in here at the foundation. Um, but then also we fund postdoctoral fellows and then young investigators, uh, new faculty at, at universities. Um, uh, around the world. So, uh, and then the third is is our annual conference that we hold every year. And and in addition to other you know events throughout the year, um, we uh, try to engage the stem cell community and and uh, explore you know how uh, stem cells are being translated into into clinical th- um, uh, pursuits and, and and potential therapies. Also, a very always has been a. Very big, strong uh, proponent and supporter, obviously, of stem cell research. New York Stem Cell Foundation is um, going to Washington if they have to to try to help, uh, kind of, per, you know, pursue and persuade legislation that favors, you know, funding and things like this. I have to say that I was a postdoctoral fellow. I was a Drucker uh, Miller uh, uh, NICEF fellow, funded fellow when I was a postdoc, and it tremendously helped my career. Not only in the funding, uh, Scott, but just being involved in a network of scientists with nice, with, yeah. you know, stem cell scientists that NICEF does such a great job of. I think that's really important nowadays, right? To, to have a, a, a group of, of you know, a family or a group of people that you can go to and, and troubleshoot problems with. And I think that NICEF does a, a great job at, at setting that up. Um, and for anyone who's interested in those programs, they can go to NICEF.org and, and check it out. Now, let, tell us a little specifically about your work, Scott, there. And, and what you're focused on, and then we can take that and move into to you know one one of the papers that was recently published. Yeah, so so I'm really in, currently in charge of, of two areas here at the foundation. One is uh, our research efforts in uh, various neurodegenerative diseases, so Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, doing disease modeling for uh, for, for those two diseases. Um, but then I'm also uh, in charge and have been developing all of the automated systems here that we use for deriving large numbers of stem cell lines in parallel and and then further developing that to uh, do things like directed differentiation uh, um, all sorts of different things that you can use uh, liquid handlers and and automation to um, help scale uh, research studies so I have to say this is my second day at the office, and I'm actually in Scott's office. We're conducting this interview live, which is rare for us. But uh, this, I mean, the automation here is quite fascinating. I don't think uh, I've ever seen anything like it. And you've seen videos, right, Chris? Or yeah, they're, they're, so, they're, they're so cool. Yeah. It's yeah. so cool. Um, Sorry, Yos, I don't know if you want to continue. I don't want to cut you off. No, uh, no. I, I I, mean, maybe you could – it's hard to describe. Uh, you kind of need to see the video of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, before, Scott, before you do that, can you just – I mean, for the people out there, we also – we have non-scientists or maybe non-stem cell. Explain sure. to them the concept of high throughput, like, you know, and why an iPS cell in these induced pluripotent stem cell – stem cells, why, why is this needed? So why did NICEF want – 
to create this robotics, this auto, you know, kind of automatic, if you will, high throughput situation. What, what's the advantage there? Sure. Yeah. So, so you know, as as uh, many people know, uh, we can take uh, adult tissues, uh, skin cells, blood cells, um, and convert them into cells that behave much like embryonic stem cells. So they have all of the same properties. They can you know, differentiate, uh, turn into all of the different tissues in the body. Um, so this gives us sort of a tool for probing into uh, an individual's biology in the laboratory. So you can uh, understand how you know, their um, particular diseases uh, affect the cells um, that are derived from their own uh, genetic makeup, their own, their own cells. So you know, it gives us a, a handle on an individual's biology. Um, so what we were really interested in doing, though, was trying to understand how um, some of the different uh, complex diseases uh, how, how these work and, and using stem cells as a tool uh, to try to understand really sort of complex genetic interactions really requires looking at a, a, you know, a large number of, um, uh, of individuals in parallel. So our, the, one of the main reasons why we uh, developed the automation for deriving stem cells was to um, be able to derive large numbers of, of uh, stem cells from large numbers of patients in parallel, and also do it in a very repeatable, standardized, um, consistent fashion, so that that uh, the the stem cells that we derive from the first individual were um, made identically to the to the uh, every other individual in the collection. So it really, you know, it, it, the the purpose was to look at populations of people and and really be able to to um, handle uh, their stem cell lines and eventually differentiated cells in in parallel. Parallel, so that we're applying sort of the same experimental conditions, the same environment, this all the same sort of uh, background, um, uh, you know, uh, all of the, the background environmental conditions that, that go into, into cell culture. Right. Get sort of applied uniformly across everything. So, um, so we, 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 you know, the goal was to try to eliminate a lot of the sort of the technical noise, the person-to-person variation. Um, you know, the, the way that I culture or handle stem cells might be slightly different from the person sitting next to me, and so we wanted to to, to reduce that and eliminate it so that we might be able to uncover really sort of subtle. Um, differences between different individual cell lines so that um, the contribution of their genetics might pop out over all right. of the technical noise. Right. Yeah. So, so that, you know, so that, that was, that was probably the, the, the biggest uh, sort of drive to, to, uh, to, to, to develop all of the automated systems for, you know, first taking uh, initially skin punch biopsies um, from, from patients and deriving fibroblast banks and then taking those, um, those skin cell um, fibroblasts and directing their differentiation, or um, sorry, uh, reprogramming those into into iPS cells, and then uh, taking those stem cells and directing differentiation into different tissues. So it it it, it it's allowed us to handle many hundreds of cell lines in parallel, whereas one person working alone um, can only really reliably manage a, a handful. So it, it allows us to sort of scale the studies that that that. That we're interested in, and so this was what recently published. Uh, is right in, in, in Nature Methods, um, and and we we actually talked about it. In a, um, I don't know if it was last episode or the episode before, so we'll, we could put the link. I have the link to go back up for this episode. Everybody can read it in more detail, and. 
Um, I think I think what you hit on is so for anyone who's doing this research, when you present it to to somebody, uh, IPS technology, it's amazing. It looks amazing, and it actually it, it's truly amazing. But it's technically it, it could be technically challenging, as as Scott said, because the variability can be so high when you're talking about different ways to make IPS cells, different people doing it at different times. I'm even convinced that at different seasons of the year, when it's cold or warm, it can have an influence on, on things. So trying to standardize that in any way possible. Um, is is appreciated, and this is what that done. So, I, so you can actually go, Scott, from the biopsy to the endpoint differentiated cell, or do you have to create the fibroblast first and then feed it into the system? Yeah, so so we actually break it up into different stages. So we create uh, fibroblast banks first, and then uh, take those fibroblasts, and then in additional processes, thaw those back out and, and generate the stem cell lines. And so there's a couple of sort of stopping points, hold points, where you can um, freeze the cells down and, and and collect them into different collections, and you know, it sort of gives us the ability of if you know technology improves for um, you know for reprogramming those fibroblasts, we can go back and restart the process over again if we wanted to, or you know, even apply some of the the newer um, direct uh, direct um, uh, trans differentiation methods that have uh, have come out. That's a, you know that's another possibility. But uh, so for this paper, let's I guess uh, go into it slowly. Um, <laughs> The first step would be uh, how were the repro- how was the reprogramming done? Did you use this polycystronic vector or was it synthetic RNAs? Yeah, yeah. So, so we 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 use the uh, the modified uh, synthetic mRNAs that uh, it was basically the, the, the same kits that StemGent sells uh, um, for for reprogramming, and that we we started off um, developing the system around using Sendai virus and some of the initial. Uh, some of the first versions of Sendai, this Cytotune 1, 1.0. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it would work great, and and other times it was it, it didn't work very well in our hands. So we had a lot of sort of batch to batch variability initially. Um, some of the newer versions of Sendai have improved quite a bit. So um, you know, th- technology again has improved over time, and and reliability has improved over time. But the using actually the modified mRNA allowed us to. Uh, do a lot better um, sort of batch control over the the reagents actually going into the reprogramming. So we get, you know, again, more consistent uh, um, uh, performance from run to run to run over over time. Um, And, you know, this has traditionally been sort of thought of as a uh, a pretty laborious, uh, um, tricky thing to get to work in the laboratory, but uh, we found that actually using the the, the liquid handlers to deliver the to do the transfections and deliver the mRNA actually improved consistency and actually improved a, a efficiency of reprogramming in in, in our hands. So um, simply the the act of automating things actually actually improved our um, ability to reprogram, you know, uh, cells from uh, patient to patient. So okay, you get a yeah. uh, skin biopsy, you yeah. expand the fibroblasts, freeze them down, and then store them. And then store them. Yep. And uh, so, do you have multiple vials per patient? Yeah. So we free- freeze back multiple vials per patient um, during the production of the fibroblast from those skin punch biopsies in that first stage. We collect a lot of information on uh, growth rates, uh, the number of seed, the yield of cells produced per biopsy. Um, so we have a lot of information on on 
uh, on the the individual characteristics of the growth rates of those fibroblasts. So then we can, um, when we get ready to start a production run, a, a, a reprogramming run, we can bin and batch uh, similar um, behaving fibroblasts in, into a production run. So uh, so it, it, it improves the um, the, the our ability to handle multiple different samples in parallel at the same time. Okay. And so once you have that bank, say, what, 10 vials per patient or something like that? Yeah. yeah, yeah and then uh, so you take one of those vials. I, I, it was like 100,000 cells or something yeah, like that. Yeah, per roughly. Yeah. And then uh, you thaw the cells. And then from there, you start the reprogramming using the synthetic RNAs. Right, right. And then uh, from there, you have multiple colonies that pop up, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so we do the reprogramming in a 24-well format at the moment. Um, and we usually get anywhere from you know, five to 50 or so colonies per, per okay. well. Yep. All right. And then from there, uh, I see it was pooled together. The clones were pooled. Right. Now, right. Uh, what, what was that an issue uh, or did you guys settle on that or was it a – did you guys have a fight about this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's still a uh, sort of one of these uh, – um, uh, things that st- sort of still being hashed out in the literature, I think, but uh, but we actually th- um, preferred to do the the pooling um, of the uh, all the reprogram cells that come out of an of an individual reprogramming event. So so from a well, we pool all of the reprogram cells that, that that come out. So there's a couple caveats here though that uh, um, that, that that should be noted um, when. By using modified mRNA, um, what we've noticed, and 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 uh, some of the what data we present in the paper, but there's you know, other data to back this up, that the um, the colonies that get uh, get produced by mRNA and under automation seem to be. Um, more consistent from colony to colony. So, uh, for instance, we don't see a lot of the partially reprogrammed cells that you often see with some of the viral methods. So, I see. Uh, um, but in addition to that, we have an important step in in the process where we use uh, cell surface markers directed against uh, fibroblast markers. So, an anti-fibroblast uh, surface marker to basically deplete anything out of the culture that still retains a fibroblast surface marker. So this mm. could be tr- untransformed fibroblasts or or partially reprogrammed cells. But what it does is it applies sort of a standard cutoff for mm. um, for anything going through the process. So that pool of lines or that pool of reprogrammed cells actually you know represents a, a uh, a sort of a standardized cut or selection for um, for reprogrammed cells. Um, so we we actually think that that starting off from sort of multiple reprogramming events per individual might actually in the long run be more representative of that person's uh, uh, genetics rather than picking individual clones that might you know capture yeah. um, you know mosaicism yeah. in the in the in the fibroblast population. Yeah, I'm a I'm yeah. a pool. I'm in the pool. I'm a I'm pro pool. You're pro pool. <laughs> yeah, I'm pro yeah. pool. There's. Yeah. I've, I've sat, I've seen this in review a lot. I've seen, um, you know, sitting in reviews, whether it's a grant or a paper, some people 
you know, they pool samples. They pool clones. They'll pool DNA from clones. Yeah. And with the idea being that, like you said, Scott, if you can, the more the population, the more of that you can grab and pool together, you're trying to incorporate these, you know, as much variability as you can. And then the people have present the other side, you know, where it's, you, you know, you're, you're mixing everything together. Blah, blah, blah. But I, I, I totally understand the logic. And I would imagine also in, in, in maybe for the automation, I don't know if it's, it's also an easier thing to yeah, do yeah, in the automation it, it, step. Is, yeah, definitely. I mean, we do have the ability to, to go isolate, uh, you know, by limiting dilution, isolate um, clonal lines. So that, that, that's going to be important for uh, some of the downstream applications like using sure. the automation for, um, you know, for clone selection after uh, um, gene targeting, for instance. So, um, but, but what we, for, for standard line production, it actually simplifies the process, but, but I also think it, it actually improves the um, representation of, of the cell lines per individual. Um, but there are a lot of caveats there. I mean, we're, we're handi- remember, we're handling every, everything under automation under really standardized procedures. So um, any uh, any selective pressure is going to be applied uniformly across right. the, the individuals in the reprogramming. So so uh, you do the negative selection for uh, fibroblast markers. Do you do any positive selection or is it just uh, negative and then freeze that down yeah yeah so it's just right now it's just just purely negative selection okay. and then and then allowing those to recover and and uh uh then we we, we go through and and consolidate uh you know several of those pools per um per individual reprogramming we consolidate those pools back into a you know smaller number of 96 well plates basically okay and, and then that gets frozen yeah okay Great. So, well, does the does the I'm going to call it the robot. Does it does it freeze down, Scott? Too. Uh, it it, uh, it 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 doesn't can it prepare them for it being can frozen? prepare them for freezing. But then we take okay. them offline and you know and put, put them in freeze freezing them containers and yeah yeah yeah. And so and then so where is so for you know everyone out there you generate these IPS colonies and we have to qualify them in some aspect to to, to show that they're actually pluripotent. Yeah. Do you do this at high throughput, Scott? Is the does it is it or, or is this now you have your lines you take them out and and you by by human kind of assay them for markers or something like that? Is there is there a checkpoint at this point or are you just yeah, continue so, your differentiation? Yeah. So 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 we do the 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 QC on the lines also as part of part of the automation um, as well. So after after those those initial cell lines get 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 frozen and, and banked, we thaw groups of them back out and then expand them and shoot off different uh, uh, different plates for some uh, several different QC steps. So okay. uh, one of one of the main uh, quality control steps that we perform is a is a. Embroid body assay. So this is, uh, you know, basically taking the the stem cell lines, aggregating them, and allowing them to spontaneously differentiate down the the three germ layers. And then we do a, a gene expression assay and uh, analysis to determine um, whether or not those cell lines, you know, successfully differentiated in, down the three germ layers. We've been using um, Alex Meisner's uh, scorecard assay approach for um, for doing doing this quality control check. So basically, we um, 
assess the individual IPSL line for performance relative to a standard set of human ESL lines that have been taken through the same assay. So we're we're looking at um, relative to a panel of human ESLs, can this particular IPSL um, differentiate equivalently to to standard human ESL lines? No, I can't th- this is the sorry. Is this is the scorecard uh, idea? Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is available yeah. from Thermo Fisher, right? Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. 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 We're, we're we're actually we're using a slightly different version of it. Uh, actually, the the um, uh, some of the original gene sets sure. out of the paper, but uh, but the the the, the assays essentially uh, gives you the same type of readout that uh, okay. um, it's pretty comparable. Now I can imagine when you do this with a large population, uh, some. Do some people just not program reprogram well, or yeah? Actually, it- actually, so we we have started. So um, you know, we're we're we've been running through hundreds and hundreds of samples now, and we've actually come across um, a genetic a, 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 a mutation that looks like it prevents reprogramming, and so we're in the process of trying wow, to figure is that, out what, what, what that is. Is it MBD? So a, Are you going to make uh, Jacobana <laughs> really happy? Or no, it's not. It's not. It's not that one, but uh, it's. Uh, but but it's actually the, for the first set that we the, the, the first instances that where we had you know four different individuals with the same mutation all consistently fail after multiple really? attempts, even when everything else worked fine wow. and their parents actually worked fine. So uh, so it seems like a legitimate... Uh, hey, yeah. Turn a negative into a positive. Let's find out why. Yeah, I mean, it's, exactly, always, yeah. Yeah. it's always good to know. You know, those are... It's intriguing to me sometimes why you get such variability in the ability, you know, in the, in the ability to reprogram. So if there is more information, we can learn about that. And you guys would be able to extrapolate that on a much larger scale, obviously, yeah. when, you're, yeah. when you're doing uh, at that bandwidth. And but before we run out of time, I don't. I think I don't mean we have maybe like ten minutes, Yosef. Uh, you yeah, probably have the clock better minutes. than me. Uh, can you just for for everyone talk about the bandwidth, Scott? What yeah. what? How many samples can you really run at one time if if you if you had everything running efficiently and maxed out? Uh, yeah, maxed out everything. We can we can the the, the capacity of the system is about two hundred cell lines per month. So it takes uh, roughly. Uh, twelve to sixteen weeks to run through the whole process. Um, so it's you know it's still the natural um, reprogramming um, process and expansion uh, that does, hasn't sped up any. But but we have the ability to handle about two hundred uh, cell lines in, in in parallel, and we start roughly twenty four samples per week um, every week. And uh, so you know the, the the capacity in the system is you know roughly about 200 cell lines per month now we're um since it's you know it, it's it's systems that are that are modular you can you can increase that that capacity by just sure. adding adding more systems on so we're we're actually looking at uh um increase you know, ways of increasing our capacity um at the moment and and designing the sort of the next generation of systems now this is sorry, Yosef. Sorry. Go no, ahead. I was just going to ask, you know, sort of transition to as to how how or why this is important for maybe doing drug screens or how does this apply to, say, Big Pharma, some of what they want to do? Or, uh, I mean, obviously your interests may be different from what they want to do, but uh, I'm sure there's room to work with them or uh, do sort of like what's the practical application of having so, uh, this automated process and so many cells? Lines. Yeah. So, so you know, I think I think there's a, there's a, a few different areas where it's really applicable. Um, you know, the 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 first one of the the um, 
things that we're interested in is if we can actually replicate the results of clinical trials uh, in vitro. So, uh, for instance, tracking patients going through a clinical trial in parallel, trying to uh, generate their stem cell lines and see if we can develop assays that allow us to predict their response to a particular drug. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, 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 that's sort of one uh, one application that, that, that we're really interested in, in pursuing. Um, and then the other is, uh, you know, sort of prospectively trying to screen through uh, populations and understand if there are subpopulations that might uh, show different phenotypes. Uh, um, so, you know, the, the idea being that, that maybe not all Parkinson's patients are actually have the same um, you know, molecular reasons for their disease. And so trying to subtype different patients and see if we can match up uh, uh, phenotypes that we see in vitro to, to clinical subtypes within a, within a disease. So um, can we predict um, based off of, off of assays whether or not you know, Parkinson's patients with different types of tremor presentation, um, can, can we see that in, in vitro? So it's mm. somewhat getting towards using it as a diagnostic tool to, um, nice. and, and being able to predict uh, um, uh, clinical phenotype you know, with, with the idea of, of then you know, being able to tailor drug regimens to, uh, to, uh, to the patient. So you know, long-term goal, but uh, that's where we'd like to go. And and this th- this is a service, Scott. That's available to the to to, to somebody or a company or, or or a lab. I would imagine that would have the the bandwidth to do such. If they were looking to reprogram a whole bunch of lines, they yeah. can work with NICEF and do this. Yeah, yeah. So we we've already uh, started several different collaborations with different groups. So we have a a big collaboration with the Broad to uh, drive. Um, several hundred cell lines from uh, patients with autism, for instance. And mm. then uh, working with the Michael J. Fox Foundation, the um, uh, uh, PPMI study, the biomarker study, where they're tracking, uh, I think it's about seven or 800 uh, uh, Parkinson's patients. We're deriving stem cell lines from some of those patients. And uh, so, so basically, we're, we're working with groups that have these large collections that they would like to convert into, into iPS cell lines for various... Uh, various reasons, various studies. Mm. Excellent. And uh, Chris, I I don't know if you have any more questions, but uh, we're at the 25-minute mark. I was going to raise the where's the beef question that we uh, like to ask uh, our our guests. Uh, So uh, with stem cells, uh, where do you think some of the pay dirt is going to come from all this research in in terms of the front lines? A lot of people want to know where... Where are the cures? Where are the therapies? Yeah, uh, what do you yeah. see around the horizon? Yeah. So, so I really, yeah, I think some of the the, the, the first uh, um, first results that we're going to see are from drugs that have been either developed using stem cell lines, uh, you know, very stem cell models of a disease, um, or uh, cases where we have screened through sort of existing drugs that that might be useful in in, in treating patients. I think I think we're going to probably see some of the f- some of the better. Drugs Drugs for for diseases that don't currently have good drugs start to come through. Um, I, that's my uh, that, that's my prediction for the sort of the the, the low hanging fruit of, uh, right. of, of of where things will work. But you know, there's also good good hope to think that that some of the cell therapy trials will will bear fruit as well. Yeah, I mean, using people. I think the more the more people I talk to uh, on the street, I'm using air quotes uh, yeah. lay about stem cells. They they think of stem cells being used to put back into people, but really, uh, one of the most I, I still feel immediate 
uh, kind of benefits of really is that you can use it as a tool to screen drugs, whether they're new drugs or old drugs that have been around and repurpose them for new, new things. So I, 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 I'm still a big uh, a proponent of that, but you still have the, you, you do have those cell therapies. The RPE story is moving along, and even with Parkinson's now, with with Lorenz and Takahashi. So there's a, uh, I agree, Scott. I, I like the idea of repurposing drugs. Our country knows drugs. We do, and uh, if we can come up with a better way to, to, to identify them and repurpose them, then um, uh, more to it. Yep. Lastly, before we run, I want to um, highlight um, for you know the New York Stem Cell Foundation uh, annual conference. That's I think it's in its is it its seventh year now, sixth year, Scott? How many conferences this, has it been? To- uh, it's, it's our t- our our tenth. Uh- oh, it has been every year since. Yeah, uh, so, so yeah, so it's on the October twenty t- eighth uh, and 29th, I think. So we're. Uh, um, we're pretty excited. We have a pretty good lineup of speakers. Yep. And it, this is held at Rockefeller University. Is it Rockefeller still? At Rockefeller, yes. Yep. The Rockefeller University. I think registration is open. So uh, for everybody who's interested, it's a it's a great meeting. Everybody really comes down. Um, you have a mix of uh, younger and older investigators. They hate when I say the older investigators. And um, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good hub in go. uh, New York City, and it's a good place to come and meet and to to talk science and just to get together and hang out with everybody. Uh, you can you can register there. Go to nicef.org and and check it out. Also. You can find more information about Scott, his work, and the work at NICEF. Um, and uh, Scott, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for both of you, Yosef and Scott, taking a busy time out of your busy day. I can see you both. I love to see two faces in the within the Skype window. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a new thing for us, but appreciate it, Scott. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I had fun. Great. Thanks. All right, take care, guys. Bye-bye. Very okay. cool, man. Yeah. That's some really cool stuff. And yeah. you're right there in the mix now, so you get to check that out. I hope you're going to get access to that robot and see what's got going on in there, man. Yeah, me too. I, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So um, time for the rant. Yeah, man. What are, you, what are we complaining about on episode 53? All right. So this actually just happened to me because uh, now that I'm starting a new job, I had to give them my MAC address to get like Wi-Fi access. And I'm reading off my... Uh, and this has happened to me before with like serial numbers and now a MAC address. I was reading off the numbers and letters and I couldn't tell on my MAC uh, if it was a zero or a capital or a capital o. o and like Dude. why this happens a lot and i'm like i don't know zero or o but like a small o you could tell but like a big letter o versus zero like all zeros it, should have that should line. have the line down the, the diagonal right yeah I just, yeah when i write it whenever actually i write it out i write the line through it because i learn my mistakes like you know like it's it's too confusing yeah, like even you know you know when it happens to you know when you have to uh, you know when you have to verify that you're not a robot when you're on websites. Yes. yes. Sometimes they have like a capital O and the I'm typing zero. Yeah, this actually happens now that I think about it with the number one and big L. Like it's you know sometimes you have to put the in the number one like the bottom bar and then that angle bar on the top of the one so you know that's a one and not a capital L, like. You yeah, know, they should make a universal, or at least make the O wider. I'm sorry, not a capital L, a lowercase L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lowercase L, but uh, like yeah. they should at least either make the O wider and make the zero more like slender, or 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 just put the line through, like uh, especially in a serial number. Like why why make it so difficult? I've been there too. Can you tell me the serial number, please? Yeah, zero zero. There's no numbers. I'm like, okay, sorry, capital <laughs> oh, oh. O. 
Like why, why we haven't we? It's not much more work to put the line through. Do you say zero or O when you're giving a number out? Actually, you know, I I interchange. I'd like to say that I'm a strict, you know, zero person, but I, I'm not. I'm definitely not. Like when I say my zip code, I say O six eight five O. Or sometimes I'll do even I'll mix I'll mix it up and say O six eight five zero, which is like stupid. Why Why am I interchanging? Yeah, I, I'm trying to think one two zero. I think it depends on where the zero is. I might say, if it's at the beginning, I say zero. If it's at the end, I say, oh, that's bizarre. Yeah. But I, I hear you, man. It's very frustrating, especially when they're long. They're long. Some of these serial numbers are long, and you get to one that's like 15 digits in, yeah. and then it's wrong. You know, you're like, yeah, so blah, 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 zero, blah, 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 and you're like, no, that doesn't work. And you're like, what do you mean it doesn't work? That's what it is. And like, yeah. oh, maybe it's an O. Like, yeah. Really? So you have to go back and do the whole thing over again. Yeah, I'd like to say I'm pretty strict with uh, what I use, but I I do interchange them. Uh, I have to I do this with the, the word root. I don't know like how you say root R O U T E. Like, do you say Route sixty six or what route are you traveling? Like, I interchange them. So I on- do root for uh, I, if I'm routing something, I route. But yes. if it's a route, I route. So like. Which route are you traveling, and can you route it this yeah, way? Yeah, yeah, me too. I do the same. That's thing. That's what I so. do. I, 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 yeah. So some of those, and I'm pretty firm on that. I'm pretty I, good I, on that. I do it with the word defense too, like the Department of Defense. I'll say defense, but then I'll, uh, you know, the defense is on the, you know, on the field for the, you know, it depends on the context. So I, I guess, never say defense. Oh, maybe I say the Department of Defense. Yeah, you do. <laughs> That's right. I do. Why is that? Why I do we know. do that? I don't know why, but uh, yes, because as Sarah Palin says, we speak American. Yes, we do, <laughs> and not and not and not English. That was great, by the yeah. way. That was so great. So, dude, before we close, did we really had fifty three episodes of rants? Yeah, that's and more to come. Actually, fifty. <laughs> yeah, does the intro count? I don't think we ranted on that one, but well, we uh, have at least fifty rants out yeah, there, and yeah. I, they may sound stupid, but I know all you out there know exactly what we're talking about. You're sitting there going, "Man, these guys are so stupid with their rants," but you know what? You're thinking about the same thing. You hate them zeros just as much as us. I know everybody out there does. One of my favorite uh, feedback was when you said some guy got back to you and was like, "Every time I get a rock in my shoe, now I think about." Yeah, I think <laughs> about you. I think about it. That's great. I hope that happens. To everyone. Well, actually, I don't have. I hope that happens to everyone. I hope they can associate. Anyway, fifty-three in the books. We'll be back for fifty-four. Hopefully, we'll have uh, Scott Dyla on. If not, we'll always have someone else uh, for you guys. Yos, my man. Have a good week. All right, you too. I'll talk, talk to you on the other end, man. Peace.